Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, Episode 79 for February 15th, 2007. Spam Bots. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. It's time to talk about security with everybody's favorite security maven. I'm going to call you a maven from now. <laughs> not sure what a Steve not sure what a maven is. Uh, it's good. I know it's a good thing. It's like What's a. It? It's like a. Hmm, I don't know how to describe an it. Ad- advocate, maybe. Uh, no, not like a big shot. Oh, you kind okay. of a, uh, a maven is regarded by cohorts as a trusted expert in a particular field, and who seeks to pass his or her knowledge on to others. Well, you are fast with that dictionary. <laughs> that's Wikipedia for you, baby. It's right there. So you are, uh, I would say that's pretty much you, a trusted expert in security, and you seek to pass your information to others. I, I'll go along with you, that. You to Maven, man. And uh, today we're going to talk about what, Mr. Maven? Well, um, a couple things. I, it's funny. I was listening to one of your recent Twit broadcasts. I sort of listen to them in the background when I'm doing work that I, you know, where I can have you know, one ear on that. And you guys were talking about, this is in the last couple of weeks, the really continuing expansion of zombie botnet fleets. Uh, do you remember that I was a couple of weeks ago? Somebody had some stats about the percentage of PCs that are now believed to be infected with with some sort of remote control bot. Yeah, it was and, uh, Vince Cerf, the father of the internet, who said that uh, of the 600 million PCs out there, he believed... 150 million, one quarter, were infected. And, you know, I've talked to a number of people since then who think that number is low. Yeah. It's certainly well, a very big number. Well, it's phenomenal. And, and of course, that corresponds with two things, because these, these bot fleets are being used both for spamming and for attacking with denial-of-service attacks. And what I wanted to talk about today was the issue of spoofing email. Um, it was triggered by... Uh, well, in fact, before we get into that, we probably ought to talk about errata, and then we'll we'll start talking about it. But, but and there's also want- a news story that we'll talk about because uh, uh, botnets were used to try to bring down the internet just last week. Right. Uh, again, a, a, an attack on uh, DNS servers, the root servers, which you have always said is the weak link. Yeah, it's a vulnerability for sure. And at some point, I would maybe this isn't the episode, but I would love to talk to you. We did it on call for help, and I don't know if we've ever done it on security now about that vulnerability and. And they are trying to do things to protect people, but uh, I would love to talk about that at some point on the show. For sure. But meanwhile, let's cover uh, errata from previous episodes. Well, the, actually, this is not from previous episodes, but the, the big news today, and it's a, actually it's big enough news that it's been picked up by a number of different uh, news stories on the net, is Microsoft released a surprisingly large batch of, of vulnerability fixes on Tuesday for Vista be, or XP that, well for you know for Windows uh, but they hmm. they in, they included Vista which was one of the things that I picked up on immediately because and, and I was looking at it what what caught my eye for okay for, first of all they Microsoft tied themselves for the largest batch of of vulnerability updates they've ever released they had hmm. there were six critical and six important but together those 12 updates fixed about 20 problems because a couple of the updates fixed fixed multiple problems what caught my eye is i was just sort of scanning it first of all i looked at the length of the email that i received from microsoft and it's like whoa this is more than you know you know your normal couple one or two um so you get an email that says watch out here it comes this is what it's going to be Exactly. Yeah. I don't and know if so, I get that email. That's uh, uh, if you're able to subscribe to it somewhere on Microsoft yeah. site, and it's so just, that gives you, know, you a heads up. It does, and it sort of keeps me in the loop. Now, the reason that's that's I that I use that is I don't like 
the idea of this Windows update running behind my back right. and automatically downloading and installing things for me. So I, I also do. like I let it do it. I just say, yes. go ahead, you do anything you want. Well, <laughs> and I think for most users, it's probably the right thing to do, at least maybe to download them and then advise you when they're ready to right. install. But, but for example, on my old creaky Windows 2K machine that I'm still using, I'm not moving from IE6 to IE7. And of course, Microsoft is like really pushing IE7 hard. Right. So I, I don't, and then they've got that .NET stuff. Now they're at .NET 3.0, and that's 50 megs of blob that I just don't want on my machine. So, so you know, I'm, and I think like many of our listeners probably, I'd like to have more control over what Microsoft is pushing in, onto my hard drive behind my back. So the, the reason I bring up this security issue is that if there are other listeners among our growing base, I think you and I were just talking a minute ago, the numbers seem to be increasing. So, yeah. you know, of, of Security Now listeners. Yeah. I, I wanted to make sure that, that people would do a an explicit verification. Use Windows Update under your start menu to grab this stuff because there were six zero-day vulnerabilities, which is to say, as as we know from having talked about those before, those are those are exploits which appear and surprise everybody exploits which are active and and discovered before anyone knows there's even a vulnerability let alone a patch for it now they were not widespread exploits otherwise our listeners would already have heard about them from us right they were they were only being used in more selective targeted attacks but they were discovered on the net being used and then it was from them that these vulnerabilities were, were were reverse engineered to find out what it was these things were exploiting. So there were among these twenty problems, six of them were zero days. Six. Yes. That's unbelievable. Well, and okay, the first thing that caught my eye, as I was saying, was when, when I was scanning through this email, I saw vulnerability in HTML help ActiveX control could allow remote code ex- execution. Well, it's like, whoa, okay, that's a bad one. Because once again, that's your typical browser-based exploit that we've talked about a lot, where where doing something that brings up a page allows a remote site to to have its way with you and your computer behind your back. Essentially, you know, the the kind of problems we're going to be seeing are are mostly this type now because Microsoft has finally got a firewall that's running by default. So I don't expect to see wide-scale worm problems the way we have been before. That is, as we, as we said recently, in fact, mostly that the problems we're seeing now are people visiting unsafe sites with scripting active mm-hmm. that allows their machine to, to basically run a script that the website provides, which, you know, always makes me very nervous. And and they get their machines taken over. It's so not that the that, worms aren't out there; they still are. But you're protected as long as you're running that Windows firewall. Correct. So there's got to be some other way. That's the number. Well, and and any even if you didn't have the firewall, any currently patched system will not fall victim to the old Code Red or you know the the um, the MS Blast worm or any of the worms that are still out there poking around and will probably never get rid of. But the, on, on the other hand. It's just, it's so fundamentally wrong to have your ports open and exposing services that you don't really need to have exposed, which are what worms are looking for. Right. So, so you really want the firewall up. But then the, the other vulnerability out of this list of 20 that caught my eye, get this, was in Microsoft's own malware protection engine. There was a remote code execution vulnerability there in the way it parses PDF files. So and this is this is Windows Defender for Vista. So Wow. <laughs> uh-huh. Defender has enough as a bug in it that will will allow a, a bad guy to remotely execute code on your system? Yes. It says via a it PDF. The uh, uh via a PDF. The um and, and and the problem is Vista's Windows Defender scans incoming stuff without user intervention. It's trying to protect you. In the process it has, it exposes a buffer overrun vulnerability, exactly like we've been talking about a lot here recently. The the uh, th- this was found and reported by the IBM X Force guys, uh, uh, the ISS guys, and they say by sending a specially crafted PDF file, 
an attacker can trigger a heap overflow resulting in remote code execution. This file may be sent over common protocols such as SMTP, you know, email, HTTP, FTP, etc. In many cases, this vulnerability may be triggered without user interaction. The vulnerability exists because an arbitrary integer from a PDF file is used in a memory allocation calculation without proper bounds checking. As a result, wow. an attacker may provide a large integer value, creating an integer overflow in the calculation. This causes a heap overflow with arbitrary file data. There are several structures on the heap that an attacker may abuse to obtain remote code execution. Wow. So, I mean, here is a this is exactly the kind of stuff we've been talking about, where where a PDF file contains a very large integer, some math is done, it wraps around to a smaller value, then a, a small amount of memory is allocated when a large amount of data is provided, which overflows the buffer that was allocated, and wham, you've got a compromised system. So, and, and I think the, the, the little, the, a couple articles that I've seen have commented that, well, you know, the one thing you want to have really be secure is the the software which is securing you. And so here's a vulnerability <laughs> yeah, in, no Win kidding. <laughs> in Windows Defender, and it affects Vista as well. So again, it's you know again it's this, these are really difficult things to fix. Now, what I haven't been able to find, nor have I been able to test this, is whether having hardware DEP running would protect against this. Uh, I'm going to keep my eyes out to see if I can find a uh, any demos for this. Oftentimes, exploits will will surface a few weeks after the patch. Just looking for people who haven't made their machines current and 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 kept them updated. So I may be able to find some sample code to ex to, to exercise this exploit, which would then allow me to play with hardware DEP under Vista, uh, well, and XP, and see whether having it enabled would have already protected people because, of course, it would be very cool if this was never a problem for people who had a hardware DEP running. We don't know that. We don't know one way or another about that yet. Yeah, yeah. And wow. uh, anyway, so so I absolutely want to let people know that if they don't have Windows constantly checking for updates, go and do one now because there's a big package of goodies waiting for you at Microsoft that you really, <laughs> <laughs> that you really do want to have installed in your machines. And this is Virtually all versions of Windows, I mean Windows 2K, uh, XP, even Vista, all have are, are all have issues that are being fixed by last Tuesday's uh, second Tuesday of the month. And it was also it was also the 13th of February. So that's oh well, that's the right. Day. It was a little right. Valentine's Day gift early, a little, a little, a little pre Valentine's <laughs> Day. Yeah, exactly. Got the love. You know, I have. I'm looking at my system and uh, has yet to tell me I have a uh, an update. So. Uh, that's interesting, even in its in and of itself. Yeah, so. it is taking a while for these things to get pushed out by Microsoft. I notice that it sometimes is a day or two after the second Tuesday that that Windows finally gets around. I think the problem is so many people are using this, and of course Microsoft has all this enabled now, and for like for many years in XP and certainly all in Vista, that there's got to be a tremendous load on on Microsoft servers, especially when you get patches of this size. So they're probably metering out the rate at which they notify people of these updates yeah, but, in, order, in order to get some control over but it. But with six zero-day uh, exploits, it seems yeah. a little foolish to wait too long. And this is yeah. why I you know, have turned on the automatic updates and just, let's say, go for it, you know, because right. I don't want to take the chance. Right. Um, is there something people should do before they have started, you know, before they receive the downloads, if they, if they haven't received them yet? Should they stop surfing? Uh, well, um, it's it's always the case that, as you know, my standard advice is be very wary of scripting. So this is, you know, many of these are again scripting-based vulnerabilities that are that are being um, that are caused by uh, uh, someone browsing to somewhere unsafe. Right. One of the other ones was really interesting. It was a it's zero one six. It's technically this the sixteenth one of two thousand seven, uh, and that's the cumulative security update for IE, um, both six and uh, both IE six and IE seven. And there were 
that that's one of the updates that contain multiple vulnerability fixes. It turns out that if script tries to instantiate, which is the term used um, in in the in all this ActiveX or or COM stuff, if if the if a script if a browser script tries to instantiate a COM object which was not intended to be instantiated by IE, and there's just a bazillion of those, it turns out that a vulnerability was found in the way that happens that allows remote code execution. So so we've got vulnerabilities in ActiveX controls that are designed for IE to be able to run them, and now we've got even a bigger class of problems because it's been found that it's possible to exploit the instantiation process for COM objects in the system, which were not intended to be instantiated by IE. I mean, it's it's a mess. So, and so this is let me just make this clear: which which of these are for Vista and which of these are not for Vista? Is, is I mean, Defender obviously is in Vista. IE seven is in Vista, so I presume. Yes, but IE seven in Vista is not vulnerable to ah. this particular problem. Good. All right. There, there, and. And IE7 is also not because there are there are uh, IE7's enhanced security uh -huh. over IE6 does prevent this by, by default it prevents this particular exploitation. The problem is if IE6 had been configured to allow some of these things to run because you might have some like some some corporate system where. You, 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 for, for some corporate website or internal intranet, you were using some com objects um, in, your, in, in, in your normal daily business. If you then update IE6 to IE7, in order for the update process not to break things, it will, it will carry those, those permissions forward and you'll still be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. so, so anyway, the, the, unfortunately, it's not a simple answer. But but it, it is the case that IE7 under Vista is not vulnerable to this particular 016 um, uh, set of problems, although Vista is vulnerable, as, as we said, the Windows Defender component of Vista is, is vulnerable. And in fact, there's like eight different modules that Microsoft is now using for its antiviral stuff. That, I don't, you know, it's like Windows One Care, that's vulnerable. And there's there's like several other places where they've got email scanning engines and things that are more IT oriented than than end user and consumer. All of those, all eight of those things, use the common Windows Defender core, and they're they're all they all have this PDF file vulnerability. Wow! And uh, yeah. so so Defender, and then at some of the other patches are they uh, uh, XP specific? Uh, Vista? Are there any Vista specific patches just for Vista? Uh, no, there was nothing None. that is was only Vista except Windows Defender. Of course, you're able to to put Defender, I guess, on XP. So right. so that 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 sort of falls back there. It's both. Too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah, it, that's most, actually quite interesting. I mean, it, it, in a way, that's encouraging. There there were no zero day exploits that for that were particular to Vista. Right, and and at the moment, what we're seeing is we're seeing the um, the the common code that that has always been in Windows. That unfortunately Vista has yeah. carried forward yeah. Yeah. is you know is still causing a problem. It is also troublesome that okay, it's troublesome that Windows Defender has this problem because it was clearly recently written. So you can't argue that there was lots of legacy code well, in Windows Defender. No, because they based it on an anti-spyware program from Giant that is fairly old. Ah, uh, that's so a good point. They could have inherited bad code. Um, uh, exactly, yeah, and, so and probably I'm gonna the, let them off the this, hook there. The PDF file parser. Well, actually, I was gonna let them off the hook by just again saying that this kind of stuff is so hard to find. I mean, you a programmer could stare at that. I mean, and I, as a programmer, I have stared at my own code. A programmer could stare at that integer math and and look at it and just not see. I mean, just not see how it could be misused it's so difficult to find these things so, yeah I mean, but I, I mean when you're accepting input from a user those are the places you check yes exactly well especially see as we know a pdf file is is basically a, a form of encapsulated postscript right. and so postscript, it's programming it's a scripting it's language, right? Exactly. So, so when you open a PDF, you're running a scripting code, right. and that's exactly why a 
a, a static file like a PDF would have an integer that something would be using to drive an allocation of memory right. that creates this problem. So very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I just so so the, the takeaway message is make sure everybody who's listening to this that you you know that last Tuesday was a major patch event, the second Tuesday of the month for Windows, and you want to make sure your machines are current because although there's no widespread exploitation of these things, they generally do get more popular after the news gets out, after a patch occurs. You know, it, we, we see more exploitation then, in many cases, than beforehand, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to see that happen here. Yeah, yeah, just really... Uh... But but again, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at the brights. I'm gonna be the optimist here and say the fact that uh, Vista now has been out for uh, what what is it? A uh, couple weeks. A couple weeks, almost three. Um, well, two weeks, and has not uh, had any major <laughs> exploits that are specific that are particular to it is encouraging. I mean, that's what we're we're on this countdown clock. Frankly, uh, the minute Vista shipped, I I I've been waiting to hear of that first Vista exploit. Yeah, they will happen. There's, just, there's no doubt. I'm I saying half a, full. You're saying half empty. That's just the I, way it is. Uh, well, and for you to be saying half full about Windows security, it's pretty surprising, uh, isn't it? That's that's a real change. I, I yeah. think it might just be that I want it to be true. You know? <laughs> I got a a really neat note that I just wanted to to share with our listeners about. This is a different kind of sort of about about Spinrite. We have an avid Security Now listener named Russell Gordon who who has been listening to the testimonials that, that I've been sharing with our listeners and got to the point where he was looking forward to his hard drive crashing. He wanted to use Spinrite. <laughs> he did. I just love this note. So he, he, says, he says, Dear Steve, I'm an avid listener of your Security Now podcast. That's so and of, that's, well, Just listen. It's so great. It says, And I've always heard you and Leo reading the Spinrite emails that you get. Yes. When I would hear those stories, I would think to myself, one day, I'll be needing Spinrite. As a matter of fact, after hearing the stories and how much success people were having with Spinrite, I was almost eagerly anticipating getting to use it. Well, yesterday was my day. I'm a controls engineer who programs industrial computers called PICs, or PLCs, Programmable Logic Controllers. Those are risk-based processors that are extremely reliable and hardened for the industrial environments they reside in. Yesterday, I was at one of my customers' sites which is a brewery in Texas. I've been working for several days on upgrading one of their programs to change the way the beer was being filtered. <laughs> like, wow, that sounds like a good idea. He says, yesterday afternoon, I started getting these Windows messages about how memory was corrupt, and I noticed that my hard drive light was staying on a lot more than usual. At one point, I had to power the laptop down and turn it back on due to unresponsiveness. When it started to boot up, I got a message saying something to the effect of NTOSKRNL, the, the yeah. NTOS kernel, XE, is missing or corrupt. Yeah. I rebooted again, and it never even got far enough to tell me what was wrong. Dead laptop. He says, I knew it was time for me to purchase and download <laughs> Spinrite. He gets to use Spinrite. <laughs> <laughs> he said, what was interesting to me was that after hearing all the stories, I was not even the least bit worried. For some reason, I was in the mindset of bring it on, baby. <laughs> he says, we do not recommend I, this, by the way. <laughs> yeah, don't go dropping your laptops just so you have a reason to run Spinrite. Yeah. Anyway, he says, because I knew I could probably resolve the problem with my drive. It was, be, uh, it was being recognized by the BIOS, so I knew that Spinrite would have a good chance of helping me out. I purchased and downloaded Spinrite and started it running in level two. It found quite a few problems with my disk, and all but one of them was recoverable. Hmm. I, let it, I let it run overnight and came in the next morning, and it was complete. I pulled the floppy out of the laptop and rebooted, and there was my Windows again running perfectly, just like it should be. Thanks to Spinrite, Texas will still have a good supply of Shiner beer. <laughs> and filtered, no less. <laughs> <laughs> Well-filtered Shiner beer. Wow, that's really great. Another happy uh, story. I just got a kick out of that. It's like, <clears throat> bring it on, baby. Spinrite, of course, is uh, Steve's uh, disk recovery and uh, maintenance program and available <clears throat> Excuse me, at grc.com. Uh, Before we get into the uh, uh, show, uh, are you are you ready? 
Yeah. Yeah. Because I, are you ready? Are you prepared? I would like to uh, mention our sponsor, Astaro, because version seven of the, this is good news, of the Astaro Security Gateway is here now. And of course, Astaro uh, makes this great security uh, software, and they've been a sponsor of the show for some time. And uh, and we are really happy to have them as a sponsor. Uh, let me just talk a little bit about version 7, because uh, there are a number of new improvements, including transparent email encryption and decryption. You know I'm a big proponent of that. There. Well, and Leo, l- let me just interrupt you to say, I think that is so cool, because it means that the the machine, that, that is your gateway machine, does all the encryption and decryption. For you. So inside your network, you right. don't have to have any of that stuff. You, you don't, don't need be, to see any of that stuff. You don't have stuff. to be aware of it. Yeah. Uh, I think this is great. You can use SMIME or Open PGP standards. Uh, inbound email is automatically decrypted too, so it's just it's just really a great solution, uh, completely automatic. They also now have secure remote access uh, on their VPN via SSL, which, as you know, makes VPN so much easier. Yep. Um, let's see what else. It's the effect. I think it's the only UTM market uh, appliance on the market with uh, VPN solutions that are SSL, IPsec, L2TP, uh, and PPTP with SSL VPN. I mean, they really covered the waterfront there. Uh, can be clustered for scalability. So, you're, you know, if, as you grow, so will your Astaro gateway. In fact, you can even get up to 10 clustered together without load balancers. It does it automatically. And uh, they're going to continue to offer the home use package, <clears throat> but the V7 package will now be free of charge. Get this, and will include the base license, all subscriptions, and Astaro up to date, but it'll be limited to 10 IP addresses or 10 users or 10 co- 1,000 concurrent connections, plenty for a home user. So you don't even have to purchase the home user subscription anymore. The one that we were talking about for 79 euros, you get that for free. These guys are the good guys. Aren't they great? You can download Astaro V7 for free uh, on the website or call them for a free demo unit, A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. I am just really pleased uh, that, that they've made that free now, including the subscriptions. That just makes it so much, so much uh of a great product for everybody out there. Now let's get to, uh, to our uh, topic of the day. And I think it's, uh, couldn't be more apropos, the use of bot networks. And you're going to talk about one particular use of bot networks. Well, yeah. Um, the, okay. The, the problem is, and we've talked about this before, that bot networks are one of the new ways of disseminating spam. So when, when these little bots that are running on by some reports, uh, what is it, 150 million machines, one quarter of all PCs, when they're not being used to go blow some website off the net through denial of service attack, they are being used, and it's been confirmed, for sending spam. They're, they're like sources of spam. Um, a couple times, we've received some complaints from people saying, hey, uh, you, you, GRC, uh, you know, Steve Gibson, sent me this spam. And it's like, oh, I guarantee you, I <laughs> yeah. didn't send you yeah. any spam. Yeah. And I'll I'll scroll down, and they'll like have attached the spam, mm-hmm. and it's you know some horrible blob of of keyword stuff meant to get through the spam filters. And then typically it'll have some binary attachment, which is you know some evil thing. So it's not only spam; it's probably malware that is being sent. And something in the headers has led them to believe that I sent it. Well, often so, it's the it's the from address is. XYZ33 at GRC.com. I'm getting those to twit.tv all the time. And yes. I hear from people all the time who are saying, they're using my address. Nothing you can yes, do. Yes, and it, it, exactly. And, and so, so what, 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 the spam, what, what the spam generators have is a whole list of reputable mm-hmm. websites like mm-hmm. mine, like yours, mm-hmm. like many others, mm-hmm. you know, CNET and Amazon. Mm-hmm. And so, so they have a huge list of reputable websites and they'll randomly pick those websites and and spoof them as the source for the spam they're sending out in order to get through people's filters, in order to basically try to, to, to steal the credibility which is built up by good domains and, and ride their junk through on that credibility. I wonder if that works, though. I don't think, sp- I think anti-spam solutions aren't fooled by the return address. Well, no, it takes actually it takes more than that, but in in the in the samples that I have been sent from from spam that has been sent in GRC's name, the headers do do provide some reason to believe that it came from us. 
And that's what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to, to, to talk about how the headers can, well, there's one mechanism in email, which is it's very cool, and it turns out it's very useful for tracking down the true source of, of spam that is, is, is received. And so this is of interest to listeners because if they get some stuff and want to understand a little bit more about the path it took to, from wherever it was originated to their machine, that, that information is in the headers. The idea is and, um, that email was originally designed at, with what's called a store and forward model where you would have so-called post offices and, and those would receive email not only for their own recipients, but actually technically for anyone. That is, any in, in the old days, in the good old days of the original design of the Internet before it became so subject to abuse, you'd have an SMTP server, Simple Mail Transfer Protocol, SMTP, which would be out on the net listening on port 25 for anybody who wanted to connect to it. And it would accept a connection coming in on port 25 and say, hi there, uh, identify who it was and accept email. Now, if the email was bound for its own domain, its users, it would store it locally, and then the users would use a different protocol, originally something called POP, P-O-P, the post office protocol. That's what clients use to hook up to their, to their POP server, and that's in, in, in the case of POP, it's on port 110. They would hook up to it in order to retrieve their mail. Uh, IMAP is the other now uh, arguably as popular, if not more, protocol that, that essentially does the same thing, but it's more recent and has a, additional fe uh, features. In the case, though, that this SMTP server received email not bound for one of its users, it would look at it would it would still accept it and say, "Oh, um, hmm, this isn't for me, but uh, I'll send it on toward its direction." So it would it would look up using DNS. It would look up the, the what's called the MX records in DNS. Uh, MX stands for Mail Exchange, and find the IP address of the SMTP server for that mail's intended recipient, and it would connect to that server and forward the mail. So it was sort of a go-between. Well, this quickly became exploited by by spammers. And, and a server operating like this is known now as an open relay because it is a relay point. It will accept email intended for people other than its own users, that is, other than its own domain, and happily forward it on. So spammers quickly discovered that they could simply dump their spam on other people's SMTP servers and get them forwarded on their behalf. Well, one of the things, one of the consequences of this sort of store and forward model was, was realized by the original designers of the email system. And this is, again, this is part of, you know, the original brilliant conception of all of this. They realized that it would be possible for email routing loops to exist in this store and forward model. That is, they deliberately designed SMTP servers to be friendly back when the Internet was all just good guys. And so you, you might not be able, for example, to send email directly to its destination. You'd have to stick it on an intermediate server, and then it would, it would try and try and try for days in some cases to, to, to ultimately move the email to its final destination. The problem is if DNS was configured in erroneous ways, it might be that a, an SMTP server would send email to a destination that would either that would accept it, and then in getting ready to forward it on, it might send it back to the server it just got it from, or it could send it to a third server that would send it back to the first server, or any kind of of round-robin looping like that was possible because the protocol itself 
didn't disallow that from happening. So you could see how you could end up with a piece of email just being handed off among servers in a, in a particular messed up configuration of DNS. So the designers recognizing this problem said, okay, we need a way of tagging email such that if an email comes back to a server that it has previously sent, it will know that, wait a minute, I've already seen this mail. I've, you know, I've, I've already received this mail before. We've got a problem here. And, and it, it, it will not then continue to send it on. Instead, it'll send an error back to the email's apparent sender saying this mail cannot be delivered as addressed. And, that, and, and that's to prevent uh, just a loop, right? An endless loop. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so the way this works is any incoming email, any email received by an SMTP server has a new header appended to the front. And, and this is important for people to visualize. That is, that there, that there will be like a, a bunch of, of so-called email headers. It'll say, you know, to colon, from colon, subject colon, date colon. Those are just lines with a, a, um, a word followed by a colon followed by data. And those are the email headers. What the receiving server does is it adds its own header. It pre it appends it or prepends it to the front, to the top of the email as the first header now on the email, and that starts out saying received by. So it says it it that that received by header. Is a, is a way of establishing that it has received this piece of mail. It identifies itself. It also identifies, and this is really cool and critical, the IP address of the connection which it accepted. That is, it accepted a connection coming in, as I said before, on its port 25. Well, that means it has a remote IP which we know cannot be spoofed. As we said early on in Security Now episodes, TCP, because it requires this, this three-way handshake, that is, in, in establishing the connection, packets have to go back and forth three times. That validates the IP of each endpoint in the, the two endpoints of a TCP connection. So the IP that it logs in this received by header cannot be spoofed. That is the IP of something. It doesn't know what necessarily, but it's definitely the IP of the sender of that piece of email. So this received by header gets added to the top of the email. Well, if the email is bound for its own domain, for example, if grc.com received this piece of email, it would say, okay, it would just store it and when uh, one of um, the GRC people, one of the clients connected, it would say, oh, I got some more mail for you, and, and I would receive it. If I look at the headers in my email, I will see only one received by line at the very top of the list of headers, which was prepended there by my server that received it at grc.com. But say now that in the old happy days of open email relays this email had not been was not intended for grc my server would then the grc server or the receiving server would then forward it to its destination on at least in that direction towards its intended recipient the 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 server that received it would add its own received by header and now that one is on top of or in front of the the first one. If that server forwarded it to a third server, that third server would again add its own received by header. So the point is every hop that email makes, there is a received by header always added to the front of the email. And what that does is it creates basically a trace it, it, it allows anyone looking at the headers to, to know what path that email took as it got towards them. 
And in fact, even though out on the public internet, you no longer have open email, you very rarely have open email relays because they're quickly found by spammers. The people who are looking at spam quickly identify open email systems and will notify you that you've got that problem. So it's generally not the case that public servers are open relays. However, inside of networks, like inside of Yahoo or inside of Google or inside of, of Cox, you know, in, in any large organization, you may have multiple email servers. And so that it's very often the case that email will be forwarded internally through multiple hops on SMMTP servers, which is why users, oh, and also Hotmail, for example, um, which is why users who look at email headers will often see multiple received by header lines. You would normally not see that, for example, if some remote user had um, had sent email directly to its its target server. You would normally see typically two received by lines. The, uh, for example, a user in in in, in the Cox uh, network would they, their client would send mail to the Cox SMTP server, which would add its received by header line. The Cox server would then send it, for example, to GRC. My server adds its received by header line, where the mail then sits until I receive it. So I would see, in the normal case, two received by headers, because that mail was received by two SMTP servers, the originator's SMTP server and the recipient's SMTP server. Sometimes you'll see many more. Okay, so the way spoofing is done is the first time you see it is pretty clever. Some bot somewhere wants someone to believe that GRC has initiated, I mean, has act, is the actual sender and initiator of a piece of spam. So the mail they send out has a fake received by header stuck on the front of it. That is, most email that is sent out doesn't have a received by header because that's only added to the front of mail by receiving SMTP servers. But remember that these headers are like they're in reverse order. They're stacked so that the the first one is the most recent recipient and and then they go back in time. So there's nothing to prevent an email from being from being spoofed and generated with a fake received by header at the beginning of the mail so that when that bot then sends it to some SMTP server, that SMTP server will stamp its received by header in front, but, that's, but that means now that the, for example, the spoofed GRC received by header is underneath it and it appears that someone at GRC sent the mail to our server, which created that stamp, and then our server sent it on. So, so basically what that does is it creates a spoofed piece of email. It, at, at first glance, it hides the fact that some end user somewhere sent the mail, except it turns out that that really falls down under closer scrutiny. Remember that I said that the received by header contains the IP address that, uh, that, the, that the receiving SMTP server connected to to receive the mail. Well, GRC's server, is it, uh, SMTP server, is at a known IP address. In, you know, it's in the grc.com network. But since a, since a spam generating zombie connected to some other SMTP server trying to fake it out, the received by header, which was added by that server, won't show a connection from the grc.com IP. It'll show a connection from the, from the IP of the infected computer. And in fact, when I've responded to these spoofed emails that people have, have occasionally sent, saying, hey, 
GRC.com sent me some spam. You know, I, I, I take a look at the, at the email they sent and I write back a response explaining to them how, yes, it does look like GRC originated this because we're the lowest down header in the received by stack, except that if you look at the second one up, um, you will find the IP address not of GRC because our server would have connected to the second SMTP server. Instead, you see the IP address of the zombie machine. And and so so on So you can actually tell who who's who these zombie machines are. Yes, and in fact that's the <clears throat> that's cool not thing. spoofed. Exactly. Well, it and that's here's the point, Leo, it cannot be. Right. Because because the receiving SMTP server always adds the IP of the of the of the other SMTP server that it's accepting the email from. And it's not possible for uh, for you to have a rogue SMTP server that that uh fakes those uh, uh, originating addresses remember that it's it's actually using the con- the TCP connection okay, uh. IP and there's no way to spoof that mm-hmm. and so so it's it's what's what's been fun is when I've responded to these people and I've shown them how to read the you know I figure I ought to try to educate them since they're sending out erroneous complaints right. of you know about spam I, I I've educated them I explain and show them this is the IP that actually connected to the second SMTP server, not GRC's IP. And then I'll, I'll use my very favorite uh, site that I've shared with you. It's dnsstuff.com. Mm-hmm. It's www.dnsstuff.com. If people will go there and scroll down a little bit, there's just a beautiful array of of, of very easy to use tools, it's, it's web based that allows you, for example, to perform a re, what's called a reverse DNS lookup. I'll take the IP address out of the second received by header, drop it into the DNS stuff, and often get the I know a lot about the infected zombie computer. I'll know uh, whose network it's in, and uh, not only do I have the IP address, of course, but I actually get more information from the reverse DNS. Is it DSL? Is it a cable modem? Is it a, is no, probably, it, it's a semi-static IP. And, uh, and so I'll, I'll return that and say to the guy, this is the source of this spoofed email. Not me, but some <laughs> random zombie in Norway or in China or in Russia or wherever. One of these 150 million. I just did one, in, uh, and it's in Mexico. <laughs> Interesting. Very yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's very cool. <clears throat> but so, it's posing so, as twit.tv, but it's really a, a relay. Very often it's in the U.S. Uh, many of these zombies are in the U.S. Actually, um, 20% of spam is currently originating from the U.S., mm-hmm. 20% from Russia. Uh, oh, no, 17% from Russia, and I think 20% from China is the most recent stats. I It turns out that 60%, uh, 67% of all email is now spam. So two thirds of email is now spam. Wow. Wow. And you know, obviously no end in sight because this continues to be a problem. But but at least if 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 our listeners are interested in taking a look at some of their own spam, they'll be able to see now by 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 looking at especially if it's spoofed, if they see you know multiple received by lines, you can normally if you take a look at the IPs in the received by headers, since they are not spoofable, that's the those are the actual IPs that each SMTP server in line received that you know had a connection to, and often you will find that they are end user IPs, right. and those are infected machines. They're zombies. Yep, yeah. they've they've been, they've been taken over. Yeah, the one I'm looking at looks like it uh, was in fact uh, an end user machine. Fascinating. Yeah, now, now uh, I'll, I'll close by talking about one last, uh, and this is pretty quick, one last anti-spam measure, which is very cool, and this is what GRC uh, uses, and many others are too, and that's the, the, uh, the uh, SPF, the um, uh, Sender Provider Framework, or uh, Sender Policy Framework. It's got multiple names, and the name is mutated a few times. The idea of that is that... Uh, SPF is a very cool anti-spam measure 
but which is also very useful for anti-spoofing. Uh, GRC has added a text record in DNS. In DNS, you have different types of record. An A record in DNS uh, uh, lists the address of the machine. I mentioned MX records earlier, which uh, which give the IPs of of mail exchange servers for that domain. And there are many different types of records. Well, one type is a text record where it's basically free form. You can put anything in the, there that you want, and anyone who wants to look it up can, can essentially ask for grc.com's text records. Well, if they do, they will find one which is formatted in the, with the protocol of this SPF, this uh, server provider, sender provider framework. What it does is it declares the valid IPs of email originators for GRC. That is, in there I say that any email coming from GRC that's valid has to be in this range of IPs, and it's basically GRC's network. What that means is, since it is not possible to spoof a TCP connection, if a receiving SMTP server had somebody on the line, essentially, that is, accepted an SMTP connection, um, they would know the IP of the connection originator. That If that person then says, hi there, I'm GRC, I've got some email for you. Well, that receiving SMTP server can do a, a lookup in GRC's DNS records for this SPF record and determine what GRC's actual range of valid email originating IPs are. And if the connection it has from somebody claiming to be a, a, an authentic GRC email sender isn't in that range, it absolutely knows it's fraudulent, that it is spoofed. Hmm. and can simply drop the, I mean, they could drop the connection, they could tarp it, they could do whatever they want to. Certainly just, you know, discard the email. And that won't have any false positives? No, it, it, and that's the beauty of it. It, it cannot be, it cannot false positive. Um, there, there are some problems with this in relaying, because if GRC were to need to relay email to a third or to 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 well to a third party server for some reason. Well, I talk to people. I'll give you an example. I talk to people who have businesses. They have home addresses that they want their business email forwarded to, and they want to respond from that home address using the business address as the reply to. Exactly. And exactly. that would fail. Exactly. And and, and in fact, uh, my my tech support guy Greg, who's who's in in Phoenix, he uses um, Cox and has has in, in some cases tried to send GRC email mm -hmm. out through his Cox system, and oftentimes he'll get a bounce back because, because this system is beginning to come online. This SPF technology, of course, it's only as good as it is adopted. And it's, it's trivial to add these SPF records to DNS. It's so simple to do. In fact, the, the site that is promoting this even you know it has a little online web form where you're able to fill it out and it it, it builds for you the exact line of text right. that you that you need to put into your DNS so Microsoft so as, has a little uh, uh, field uh, form like that as well yeah that's very yeah. cool anyway so so it does absolutely prevent spoofing but it does have the problem exactly as you say Leo that if you are trying to route email through some other server and not going direct then you've got a problem you could add an SPF record uh, if you wanted him to do that. That's exactly uh, right. To to say to say, oh, he's an uh, he's a accepted sender or Comcast yes. accepted yes. sender. Yes, yes, and in fact, the well, I wouldn't. I'd be I'd be you afraid. You wouldn't want to open example, Comcast, obviously. Yes, yeah. I wouldn't want to whitelist all of Comcast network. But for example, you know, Greg's got a cable modem. He's of course he's got a NAT, NAT, a NAT router, which tends to anchor his IP uh, firmly. Also, the SPF uh, format is is flexible enough that you could you can use a domain name for example I also uh, in general 
stuff coming from us comes from an IP at client.grc.com. In fact, I think in every case, it's client.grc.com is any outgoing traffic comes from that IP. So um, you are able to use domain names in that record. So, for example, if, if we really wanted to do it this way, Greg could have his, his router set up using a dynamic DNS service, mm -hmm. which is giving his IP an automatically updating DNS record. I could put that in our SP, in GRC's SPF record, in which case his IP would always be a legitimate source for GRC email. So you only have to change it for your uh, for the domain that's the source of the email. You don't have to change it for the uh, the MX record for his uh, sending S SMTP server. He doesn't have to have Comcast's cooperation. In other words, right. The idea would be that that that, that he would put he would send email to Comcast if they were using SPF. They would check to see whether he's a valid uh, a valid generator a val a valid sender of email from GRC. Right. So they would check GRC's DNS. They go back and, and say, ask oh. you. Yeah. They, 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 exactly. They they come back and ask us uh, through our DNS, and we'd say, yes, that IP can, is authorized to generate GRC email. So if I and want to go, send okay. email from leoville.com via my Fastmail account, I wouldn't change my Fastmail's records. I would change my leoville.com's records to accept anything from that IP address. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, it's, this is, it's it also raises cool the issue that, that uh, frankly, uh, another way to, to kind of prevent these bots, now you tell me if I'm wrong, would be for Internet service providers to validate that the return email address was, in fact, in their network. Um, well, yes. Actually, there are many things that ISPs could do. For example, a, a bot, in order to do this, a bot is in a network where it is able to connect to an external SMTP server. Right. Okay. You could argue that, and well, and, and in fact, ISPs are often now blocking port 25. For that reason. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. For that reason. So you are unable to get a port 25 connection outbound. The only, the only thing you can do is, is plant your email on your, on your ISPs server. And, and that completely shuts down these bot networks. Although what the bot networks then do is they just, dump all their spam on their own ISP, right. and, and often the ISP forwards it on. So that's, that's why, by the way, I think the U.S. is now only 20%. I think it was a much larger number for a long time because some of the big high-speed Internet service providers refused to block port 25. Now they're doing so. And so yes. now it's going offshore to Mexico, Romania, Russia, and these other countries where ISPs, I guess, are not so enlightened. Right. Yeah. And in fact, what... what uh, uh, you know there are there are various sorts of workarounds for for getting through of course port 25 blocking if you just if you just allowed you know an SMTP an SMTP server to run on some other port number then then you just have to configure your client right. but you know that would work right by the way that's openspf.org where's uh, where that wizard lives if you wanted to oh cool to do that yeah and microsoft has one as well although i don't know they don't use do they use spf that's part of the reason this has become such a Spaghetti is uh, that yes. there are competing standards. Yes, Microsoft had one that they did not want to leave right. as completely open. They wanted to get uh, intellectual property protection on it, and then say, "Well, but we'll license it for no cost." It's like, wait a minute, you know, the open source community said, uh, no. Mm -mm. "No, no." And so, so Microsoft has substantially muddied the waters by sort of trying to do their own. The other very popular one is a is a more sophisticated approach known as domain keys. Um, and was it? Was it Yahoo that was the early domain? I think domain Yahoo keys Mail adopter? was going to use that, yeah. Yeah. Hotmail and, and, wanted USPF and uh, domain keys was Yahoo, I think so. Right. Right. So we're seeing those. But anyway, for, for people who are curious about the spam they receive, uh, and certainly for people like you or I or anybody else who's a, you know, a high profile, good, reputable source, we end up being the target of these sorts of spoofing attacks. Uh, it turns out the good news is it's very possible to demonstrate that we were not the source and there is no way if you know how to read those headers that you can be fooled. Yeah, would you send me the uh, boilerplate that you use cuz I would love to use that. <laughs> I get those those comments fairly frequently. Actually, yeah, more sure. commonly I get people asking me, uh you know, I'm a businessman, I have a a domain, why am I getting all this bounced back spam? Who's using my domain name and I have to explain the same thing. Yep. to them. And uh, and apparently there's nothing you can do about it. 
No. As long as people don't require domain authentication, it's going to continue. Right. Well, and it, it is interesting, too, that, I mean, we notice that we are getting the IPs of infected machines. On the other hand, there's 150 million of them, and they're all over the globe. So what are you going to do? Right. Right. Well, fascinating subject, and just one of the ways botnets are used. I do hope we'll at some point talk about uh, how botnets are used to uh, attack systems, like uh, as, as they were recently to uh, used to attack the uh, dom- domain root servers. Um, but that's a, a, a topic for another show. That'll be a good one. Uh, I think we're all done here, Steve. I will uh, see you uh, next Thursday. Have a happy uh, week and a happy weekend. And uh, sure. thanks to our favorite security maven. <laughs> we will we'll, we'll be doing episode number 80, which, of course, is going to be one of our big uh, Q&A episodes. Oh, boy. So we'll have uh, lots of good questions, and we'll, uh, we'll address the answers. Go to GRC.com. That's Steve's site, and you can uh, ask questions, pose questions there. It's also where you can find show notes and 16-kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired, and, of course, transcripts uh, so that you can follow along, read along as Steve speaks, which is often uh, useful, frankly. Oh, also, I, I should mention there have been some questions, people saying, how do they send questions to me for security now? So I want to remind people, just go to grc.com slash security now, go to the very bottom of the page, and there is a web form where you can provide as little or as much information about your identity as you choose. I don't really care one way or the other, but we do like to know names and locations in order to read these things on the air because it, you know, it makes we give you credit. to know, to yeah. know where people are. Yeah. And that's how you could submit questions to me. Yes. Steve doesn't take personal mail. <laughs> he bounces it oh, right back it. to you. <laughs> All right, Steve. GRC.com is the place for SpinWrite also. Steve's a great file recovery or disk recovery and a maintenance utility. And now Securable, his new program that tests how secure your system can be. Um, a lot of interest in that after our last uh, episode on uh, hardware debt. So, yep. GRC.com. Hey, thanks, Steve. Thanks, We'll Leo. see you next Thursday on Security Now. Security Now.